music, 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 technology, music, technology, music, music, technology, teacher, 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 technology, teacher, 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 network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Mutech Teacher Talk. This is your host, Heath Jones. I'm the founder and creator of the website, www.mutechteachernet.com, a site that I established to advocate for music technology programs in our nation's schools, to support the teachers who teach these music technology programs, and to inspire teachers and students to create music using technology. I'm so excited about this episode where I'm going to be sitting down to have a discussion with one of my former students. His name's Alec Ragsdale. Alec works as a sound designer and composer for Hidden Leaf Games, which is an indie game development studio founded with the mission of delivering a world-class experience that focuses on competition, progression, and social play. I hope you enjoy the conversation as Alec tells me about his current job and how his past experiences in music led him to his current career. Alec, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. And before we get started, I just want to share with our listeners how serendipitous it was that uh, we're having this conversation because after not uh, seeing each other for a number of years, we just happened to run into each other at this random Braves game that we both happened to be attending uh, the same day in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I saw you... Um walking down the aisle and like immediately i turned to my brother and i was like i think that was my former band director i was like i'm not sure but i'm relatively certain that it was that it was him and then actually my brother was looking over your shoulder and he saw you posting on i think facebook like what what you're doing he's like his last name is jones is that anything i was like that's him (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome that's awesome yeah so yeah so we ran each other at the game and you know and it was like so, you know, what are you up to these days? And then you told me and I was just like blown away because <laughs> of, um, you know, what I've been involved with the last, uh, you know, five or six years in my new world of music technology. So, mm-hmm. um, so, so tell me again, like, tell me what you would describe as what is your job and what is, what is it that you do? Yeah, so I am the sound designer and composer for Hidden Leaf Games. Um, I am in charge of a team of two other sound designers. Um, my day-to-day is uh, character design, uh, character audio design, as well as um, composition work. So a lot of that is like, um, I often ask people like, you know, what does a dragon sound like? And they'll be like, oh, well, it sounds like this. I'm like, okay, well, dragons don't exist. So someone has, someone had to create that. Um, so that's sort of my job is to make those creature sounds, make the character sounds, all the magic. Um, I do a little bit of environment audio, so sort of creating the world that um, the characters live in as well. Um, and then, yeah, the composition work, which um, is more straightforward, just like music writing. And then I also do some sort of system design. So um, how the characters talk, um, like... There's a, a great article, I forget who wrote it, but it was like game development in a nutshell. And it went through the like 45 steps of adding a door to a game and like all of the people that have to have their eyes on it. Um, so I'm I'm on that list of like, how do we want the door to sound? Like, 
does the door make noise when a player approaches it when they open it can everyone who sees the door hear the door um so those sort of questions about like voiceover um like important gameplay calls um i'm also somewhat in charge of those um so yeah i'm i wear a lot of a lot of hats but at the end of the day um i just i play with sounds and and make things sound cool (laughs) it's pretty amazing when uh, we do things like you know play video games or you know go see a movie or watch television we we take it for granted you know all the things that we see and all the things that we hear someone had to to put those things there so it's a lot that goes into it when you just you know point and click or hit that x button on your controller and expect something to happen yeah even you know working in game development now i i still um get lost playing video games and and the suspension of disbelief and i'll like blink and realize that like four hours have passed and like as far as my brain is concerned nothing outside of my screen has existed for that that whole time period and i'm just like fully sold into the in the world i'm in yeah that's i mean that's when you know when when things are working pretty pretty well right yeah um so so yeah so let's actually so kind of now that we know where you are now mm-hmm. um i kind of want to go back and see if we can figure out kind of like how you got there so you know thinking back what were some of your early influences not just uh you know with video games but with with music i mean how did you sort of begin to realize that like music was this thing that you were really interested in making yeah so like early influences um i think I think back to like Queen is a big one. Um, David Bowie, The Who, um, Black Sabbath, like a lot of or Led Zeppelin, a lot of those, you know, not I, I don't I hesitate to say like stereotypical classic rock bands, but just like a lot of the ones that I think have really proven throughout the decades that they were doing something special and have stayed in the um, sort of lexicon of culture. I specifically remember like being really young, like maybe being four years old and just like screaming, we are the champions, like in my, <laughs> my uh, parents' house. And, and yeah, like watching like Angus Young on like ACDC, like live concert footage. Like I, I just wanted to be a rock star from like a really, really young age. And I found myself like chasing more like the theatrical sound, like obviously Queen, David Bowie, um, had a bit of a flair for the dramatic. I mean, Night at the Opera and, and, you know, Ziggy Stardust are quite different from, you know, their contemporaries. And I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody, obviously, as well. But even like The Who, um, one of my favorite The Who records is uh, Quadrophenia. And it's like one of the more out there records that they did. It's got like Love Ran Over Me or or Me. I can't remember like how they technically spell it, but I absolutely adore that record. So yeah, that, that's sort of just like rock wanting to be a guitarist rock star was sort of my first taste of music culture and like and like really getting passionate about it yeah and you know and there's nothing wrong with uh, you know liking that classic or you know rock and roll mm-hmm. uh, you know because uh, you know like you said the, you're talking about you know these artists and this music that really had staying power i mean sometimes people forget i mean there was a lot of great music that was made like back in the 70s but there was a lot of trash that came out <laughs> in the 70s too. yeah that makes it really, uh, you know, kind of forgettable. So, but, uh, so yeah. So then, you know, as you get a little older, you, you know, you get in middle school, high school. And so 
what led you to join the band? I mean, you were trying to figure out, uh, you know, I guess like how you could start making music. Yeah. So I think I was 11 when my, <laughs> I actually remembering the story. So I had gotten like really good grades in fifth grade, like at the end of the year. And my parents were like, as a, as a reward, we're buying you a guitar and a little amplifier. And I got guitar lessons. I think I started the summer after fifth grade. And so that was my first formal introduction into like learning how to actually be a part of, of this, the music world. And then getting to middle school, I, you know, immediately was like, I want to be in band class. Like that's, I, I can spend a part of my day just playing music and getting a grade for it. And, uh, so I tried to play bass for the orchestra I really wanted to be a percussionist, like everyone. I tried out for trombone and clarinet, and the funny thing was, clarinet was like the last, I was like, who cares, whatever, last one. Like, I'll get one of the ones I actually want. Because I think if I remember correctly, we could like pick the order that we were most interested in. And I was, <laughs> I was given clarinet, which was my last choice. But I ended up falling in love with it. And I played clarinet like frequently for like eight years after that. So. You know, from from those early stages, you know, started guitar at 11 and um, started band playing clarinet shortly after. So I had sort of two very different like music experiences, one that was more formal in the sense of like sheet music and classical Mozart pieces and, you know, et cetera, being in that sort of band environment. And then a very different one where it's just singular one-on-one -on -one lessons which were focused very much on guitar and and slightly focused on like playing rock sort of one of the big changes for me in that sort of uh, learning period was when I was in seventh or eighth grade I decided now's a great time to play football for the first time <laughs> and we were in practice and I got tackled hard and received a permanent nerve damage on my left hand oh my that gosh I, I still carry today and so I, I had lost a lot of the mobility in my left hand and my whole um my whole hand with my pinky and ring finger were numb for six months like i couldn't com couldn't feel them at all and so since i couldn't learn at that time like i couldn't work on my actual like guitar technique my uh guitar teacher decided to pivot me to learning music theory and um so we stopped sort of touching the guitar and it was more like we're going to learn theory we're going to learn uh, diatonic theory modes and and sort of how chords and chords are built how triads interact you know the whole circle of fifths you know all that fun music theory stuff um so that coupled with the sort of formal you know in band setting and learning how to play with other people uh was very like formative and in I think very important to, to how, you know, I ended up where I am today. Yeah. Cause I mean, that was going to be sort of my next question was how to, you know, when you're in band, you know, you're playing the music that they, you know, put in front of you and, you know, when you're taking guitar lessons, you know, most of the time it's, you know, your teacher is telling you, okay, you're going to learn this, you're going to learn that. And yeah, I was going to ask like you, how did you begin to make that transition into actually creating and writing and arranging? And, um, so, pretty most people's answer to that question is not going to be football <laughs> yeah there's like a, a handful of like random life events um that i'm sure we'll get into that like 
had to happen in order for me to end up where I'm at. And it, I don't know, it's just shows you how crazy like life can be sometimes. Yeah. It's, um, life is, is rarely boring. Um, <laughs> or if it does get boring, it doesn't stay that way for long. So that's some of your, you know, early musical influences. So what were your early gaming influences? Man, early, early, um, well, the funny thing is, like, we weren't allowed to have a video game console for a very long time <laughs> because my parents were terrified of them. You know, I specifically remember my mom being like, how do you know when you don't get a level, like, you're going to go out and, like, I don't know, do, like, some extreme violence. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. At the time, like, I didn't understand, like, what ESRB ratings were or anything. So, um, I mean, early, early, we were allowed to have an old NES system. So I kind of, I'm like oddly grateful for that because i i sort of got to live through a generation like a console generation that i wasn't really a part of so i played like a bunch of the like all the original marios you know original metroids there was like this random beach volleyball like summer uh, like the original top gun game on nes so that was like my very first uh introduction into into gaming and then after me and my brother proved that we could you know keep our grades up and play a video game on the weekend uh we were given a playstation 2 and that was like trying to like there were so many random games like we were very out of the loop like i definitely skipped over a lot of like what people remember as like oh, like kingdom hearts was like a kingdom hearts 2 is like a you know pivotal game and that time i was over here just like playing random games i'd found on the four dollar shelf at blockbuster so like it was like rumble racing hsx all this other random stuff but i think when i started actively playing video games and like paying attention to what i was doing was when i played uh halo 3 for the first time and shortly after that fallout new vegas and those were the f sort of the first two games that i played and i was like wow games can be so much like up to that you know i was really young i was playing like sports games racing games and i mean loving it like ace combat you know like fighter jet game but halo was the first first person shooter i played and it was like a challenge to get, to get my mom to let me because i was still in middle school um she didn't want you to become a menace to society exactly um but uh when she finally let me, I, there was something about Halo 3 that was just so, like, intoxicating. Like, just immediately I was like, I'm this, you know, you're sucked into this world of this super soldier who's fighting this alien race. And, like, I, I was so fascinated by the, like, Arbiter, who was this, like, enemy of the Master Chief, but they have a common enemy. And so they've decided to separate or put aside their differences for a time and, and fight this growing um, infection like the story was fascinating the music was incredible i mean i think a lot of people even if you haven't played halo know the halo theme and that was sort of the first game that I was like everything about this game is like near perfect and and, and i still love i still play halo 3 um since it's been re-released on the pc and then yeah similarly with fallout new vegas that was the first time i was like well, games can like tell a story and like tell a really good one and they can really make you feel like you are living in a different world. And, and that was one of the first times I'd ever just been like absolutely consumed by a game. I remember actually one of the, uh, so I transitioned into bass clarinet at some point and um, the other bass clarinet player in the band actually showed me fallout for the first time. And I remember going over to her house and being like, holy cow, 
that's crazy. So then I went home and bought Fallout New Vegas and I just got absolutely lost in it. To me, it's interesting because, you know, I was, I'm 50 years old now. So I remember when, you know, like my buddy in the neighborhood, uh, you know, I go over to his house and he's got this thing called Pong (laughs) and it's, you know, and like the whole console is the game. Right. And so it's like, wow, you like hook this stuff to the back of the your television and now you're controlling stuff that's happening on the television. And um but you know, even going through, you know, the eighties and, you know, games like Space Invaders and Centipede and you know, it was all sort of task oriented mm-hmm. games. Um, or, you know, on the other side you had, you know, stuff like, you know, Oregon Trail where there was uh it was sort of a a text-based game that you know you go through the story and you know the way that's evolved just you know listening to you talk about you know halo 3 that now you have you know these relationships and dynamics between characters and i mean it's it's like watching a movie except Mm -hmm. you're actually participating in the story yeah and i think the halo 3 era of of games is sort of the and obviously, like, I'm biased because this was, like, a formative time in my life. And every, everyone's going to have, like, well, this was a golden age. Um, I, I, I truly believe that that was one of the golden ages of games because they were finally getting, like, uh, the market was big enough to support these large teams who could finally do these crazy games. But it wasn't so big to the point where, like, the investors had figured out, like, well, hang on, we can make a lot of money doing this. And so it was still sort of, it's like that transitional period of these artists were finally given the tools and the resources to create these giant games that they wanted without the sort of oversight of these like gigantic companies um, dictating and what they were doing. And obviously like Microsoft made Halo 3, huge company. But I think at that time, those developers could sort of like, hide in those large portfolios of those like venture capitalists of like yeah we're your video game like don't worry about us we're over here just sending you checks every now and then and we're you know doing whatever we want but now now money is involved (laughs) you know as you're mentioning halo i do want to bring up an interesting bit of uh, trivia i think but there's a woman named uh, bonnie ross and bonnie ross was one of the first uh if I understand this correctly, one of the first women game developers, and she uh, is, I think, a little older than I am, but uh, she was one of the early uh, women in video game development, and mm-hmm. she's now the head uh, of a company that manages the Halo video game franchise, and she worked on, uh, I think, some early games like Gears of War is one of my favorite uh, <laughs> Shooter yeah. games, and she was on that project, and she's been very active, um, you know, in, the, uh, in her career in trying to uh, encourage more women and more diversity in the, uh, you know, technology and, and STEM fields, because that's certainly historically has been an uh, industry that has been kind of dominated by by white men. So, but Bonnie Ross, that's a good person uh, to research and learn about uh, if you're interested in this field. But I love it was that's a little thing. I don't even know if you thought about it, but uh, I noticed I loved it when you talked about uh, the people that were putting Halo together. You referred to them as artists and not 
like programmers <laughs> or developers. Yeah. So what's uh, was that was that very intentional or subconscious or definitely subconscious. Um, I think before I started working in the industry, I would have just referred to everyone as developers. Um, but when you when you get inside a studio, you know everyone. There's so many jobs in this industry. Like there there are positions that people don't even know uh, know about that are like, extremely important to a studio's success, and I I think it's kind of a shame that video games are often looked at as this technical medium. And obviously they are. I mean, they're software at the end of the day. Um, and so we need software engineers. But they're this, this, this beautiful art form that, you know, we had talked about it while we were at the Braves game. Um, for me, it's, it's the perfect marriage of like science, tech, and, and art. Like it, to me, it's like, this is the final medium for humanity, right? Like, this is where, like, we can stretch out our software and like our software um, abilities and, and show off what what we're capable of with crazy math and calculus and physics and all of that. Our understanding of science and everything, and and marry that to these beautiful visuals and stories and and sounds. And I I don't think it's fair to to the people who do it to not call it art. And I don't think it's fair to the engineers who code it to not include them as being artists as, as well, because without engineers, there's no game. And I can tell you with certainty and with experience that artists desperately need engineers behind them to make all of their stuff work. Well, you know, there was a novel that was written called uh, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance by a guy named Robert Persick. And it's really, I think it's most often classified as a book on philosophy, but I've always uh, was attracted that, to that book from early on. But one of the things he struggles with is, you know, how do you reconcile, you know, things that are considered artistic versus things that are, you know, technical. And it's, you know, I have the conversation a lot of times with folks about this, that, you know, it's always a little insulting when people talk about musicians as just being these creative artistic people that it just, it just requires the artist. It doesn't require any kind of technical skill mm -hmm. or when they talk about a programmer or an, uh, a sound engineer and they think that it, Oh, it's just technical knowledge where the truth is that both of those, you know, as a musician requires a tremendous amount, I mean, years of developing technique of manipulating the instrument. So you can then be artistic with it. I think mm -hmm. the same thing with, whether you're you know, a computer programmer, you know, a sound engineer, you, you spend years learning all of the technique of code or programming or microphones, or, but it takes a, an incredible amount of creativity and artistry to come up with the final project. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I totally agree. Like, it's, it's all, um, you know, it should all be considered the same. I think the, the, the engineering side is just as artistic as the musical side. Yeah, I mean, it takes a lot of creative problem solving um, to, to work on games from, from all departments. And so there's a level of, you know, creativity and artistry in, in, in everyone's position. Um, yeah, I mean, every, obviously everyone's important. Um, and I think it goes without saying that, you know, video games, you know, are, are an art form 
you know, no matter how much the fine art world wants to um, pretend that, you know, we're not. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So, well, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's back up for just, yeah. just a minute. So, you know, you're, you're into video games, you know, you're into music, uh, you know, you're coming to the end of your high school career and you're beginning to have to make these big life decisions of, you know, what you're going to do and, and where you're going to go. And so talk to, tell me some about what was that process you went through, you know, as a junior or senior in high school when you were trying to figure out what you wanted to do and where did you end up going and why did you make that decision? Yeah. So when I was in high school early on, I was a part of a band and I, I was very fortunate because I had attended this sort of after school program and, and summer camp called uh, Camp Jam, which may or may not still be around. Uh, I'm, I'm honestly not too sure, but we had become like family friends with the people who were running it. And they asked me if I would like to be a part of this sort of like traveling band um, that was a bunch of a collection of the kids that went to this camp and we would go to various festivals and whatnot, all in the name of promoting, promoting the camp. Um, and I thought it was sick. You know, I got to play two. I was playing like two or three shows a week as like a 14 year old. Like that's insane. That's an insane amount of gigging for anyone, let alone like, I don't know how my parents like drove me around that much. So eventually that band turned in from this sort of like promotional thing into an actual band and that music is horrible, but you know, it's, it always will hold a special place in my heart. Uh, but we did a record and I remember being in the control room and just being like fascinated by what the engineer was doing. I was like, this is so cool. And I was at the time I was like smart enough to be like, I feel like the odds of me making money doing that because I was like, I'd like walk around and I would see all the records on the wall. And I was like, that's a lot of artists. I don't know. And this guy got paid to record all of them. My odds of being a successful engineer, are probably better than my odds of being a successful guitarist. Um, so that was sort of like the first spark. And then um, I was lucky enough that, you know, my high school had an audio engineering program that I was able to attend when I was a junior, which you know, funny enough, you know, talking about like the crazy things that life throws at you. I, it was, it was a lottery to get into this program. I signed up, filled out this, had to do an essay, like why I deserved to, to be in the, this program. And I got the position. And then one of my friends in band somehow successfully convinced me to pull my name to do marching band. Cause I had somehow been convinced that I was going to go to UGA to study clarinet because I was like, I'm going to be a concert. Cl I don't, honestly, I've forgotten clarinetist. I don't even know what the technical. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Clarinetist. Um, and so I contacted um, the school system and I was like, hey, you know, I can't do marching band and do this audio engineering program. and I'd rather do marching band. So if you could just pull my name out, that'd be great. And they're like, are you? Sure. Like they, I, I remember the administrator that I talked to, like the look on her face. She was like, are you sure you want to do that? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> but my name never got pulled out. Thank God. Uh, and so I ended up going anyway. And that, that program was like the first stepping stone, um, from high school out, you know, we spent the first semester learning 
the fundamentals and the sort of theory of audio engineering in the second semester, sort of applying that. And while I was there, the teacher, you know, um, had told us about uh, all the schools that were available to, to further our education on the subject. And Middle Tennessee State University was sort of the the pinnacle of, you know, audio production schools in the Southeast. You know, they've they've been doing it the longest. They're close to Nashville, so they always have a solid pool of uh, professors and, and people that come and visit and work at the university. Um, so I was like, well, best school uh, in the Southeast. That's where I want to go for the uh, for audio production. So that that sort of that audio engineering class sort of put me on a on a direct course to um to attending MTSU. And so you went to MTSU as so. What was the degree? Audio engineering, or what was that program like? So the original degree title that I was classified under was recording industry with a concentration in recording arts, I think is what the original title was. Thankfully they realized at a certain point that that doesn't look, that just looks confusing on a resume. And so the degree, my lat when I was a senior, the degree changed to audio production. MTSU's, sort of highlight program of their audio program is um, their studio production. So that's a, it's a very music centric program where, you know, we get to work on in a million dollar studio or multi-million dollar studio on, on a console that I will never be able to afford to purchase uh, the API vision in studio a, it's a beautiful, horrible machine to work on. Um, Sounds incredible, but will certainly break, uh, if you use it. So I learned a very like classical, very like master apprentice sort of style of like, this is how we record music. And while I was there, you know, I also took a lot of like digital composing classes on the side. I took an Ableton class. I wanted to take an analog recording class, but it wasn't being offered at the time. Um, so most of what I did was digital recording. Uh, but the whole, the whole program is really, really does a good job of, of, of doing a little bit of everything. You know, I did post-production audio, so we did a, like, sound for TV, and not the sexy, like, (laughs) like, sound design stuff or Foley recreations or anything. We're like, here, we're going to do some ADR today. We're going to go replace this dialogue take. Or, you know, here's a really annoying, horrible, loud interview recording that was got captured in the cafeteria of a high school. We need the, (laughs) the dialogue to be crystal clear. Here's RX, you know, figure it out. So, you know, I ran the whole gambit of sort of classic audio production from, you know, synth design, like MIDI programming, digital recording, studio recording, really everything except for game game audio, which is a um, a whole beast on its own that that has a lot of its own own, uh, nuance and niche issues. Yeah, so I was, uh, not to be rude, but I was Googling while you were talking. So MTSU, but that program has for years been, you know, one of the leading audio production engineering. And so I Googled real quick when they, when that started. And so that, their program was established in 1973. So I was uh, two years old at the time. And I bring that up just to say that, you know, the recording industry 
you know, really takes off in the 1950s and 1960s. And for um, a lot of that time, certainly up until 1973, and then it took a while for MTSU to, I'm sure, get their mm-hmm. program going. But, you know, for so long, if you wanted to be a recording engineer, if you wanted to be a music producer, the only way you were going to learn that is through an mm-hmm. apprentice uh, setup. You know, you had to try to get a job in a record studio, you know, emptying the trash cans, hoping that, you know, they'd let you in the uh the engineering room and eventually look over someone's shoulder uh, before, you know, you got a chance to get your hands on the equipment. So that's an interesting transition. You know, you said that, but you know, even there, I'm sure a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of technical knowledge to know, but I'm sure there's a lot of Mm -hmm. hands-on, you know, learning by doing aspect to that also. Would you, would you say that? Yeah. I mean, I think MTSU prides themselves on like the gear that they have there. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I think the program is so good is that, you know, we're not, you're not just taught like theoretical, like this is how we would set up a stereo pair. Like your classes are like, we're going to go set up a stereo pair and we're going to go do, you know, all 12 of the various forms of that. Yeah. MTSU's program, you know, we are constantly, working in labs and studios. I mean, the classrooms are studios, you know, it's not like you're sitting at a desk, you are sitting in a chair in a control room. Um, and yes, there are classrooms as well, but they're, they are designed to be functional studios first and then retrofitted to have enough seats for, for a whole classroom of people to sit in. So I imagine it's like, you know, medical school where you're learning to be a surgeon and they have like the operating room, but you know, there's a viewing area set up for everyone to gather around and watch. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is, it is like that. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I can't speak highly enough about that program. Obviously, you know, it can't cover everything. And I think large university programs like that are always going to be a little bit behind of like the bleeding edge of, um, of audio tech, but they do a really good job of, trying their best to keep up. I mean, you know, you know, as an educator, like it's hard to keep a program updated in an, in a world in an industry that like changes every month, but MTSU did, you know, did a great job of, of updating to include Ableton. Like they, they had included a logic pro class when I was there. Um, cause like when I had gotten there, pro tools was still very much like there, no one was even challenging avid. Uh, like when I got there, I think pro tools 11 had just released. Um, which I think people would argue is like the down the start of the downturn for Avid. <laughs> um, they probably peaked with Pro Tools 10, but that's a whole other tangent. But uh, there, there's certainly a lot more competition out there for uh, DAWs than there used to be. Absolutely. And finally, I think we're at a point where we can stop arguing about them and just accept whatever you use is what's best for you. <laughs> yeah. So. I know, and you know, as we go in the conversation, I know we're getting there because you're composing and you're creating music. Was there much mm-hmm. in that degree program at MTSU where you were actually, you know, you mentioned before after the football injury that you were learning about music theory and composition. How did you stay involved with that? Yeah, so you know, it's it's funny when you go to college, you you often think about your program as a whole, as like the whole picture, and less so like the small like one-off classes that you'll take um but those small one-off classes were like where a lot of my important 
knowledge base comes from and um the just to name a handful of those like the midi production class advanced midi production um ableton um and digital composing those four classes were really important to build the foundation of of what i would you know use today so early on so just just to sort of go back to the start of, of that like midi production was all about working in the box and like not leaving the box like we are working solely in a computer it is completely different than working in studio audio like everything you have is inside your computer and i can't remember what the first soft synth we played with was but i i was basically introduced to the world of of software synthesis and i had a friend at the time who i um i had done a record with with um a new band uh he had recorded it and i was like hey you know i this like midi stuff seems really cool like do you have any suggestions suggestions of what i should do with it or or like how i can like sort of dive into it further and he was like well serum is the you know everyone's using serum and i think it it had been out for like two or three years at that time so i, I bought serum and just went as deep as you can down the rabbit hole of embracing like what being a synth nerd is and uh you know i was taking the midi class and we go to class and i would learn like formal programming of like here's how you program automation here's you know like we even had to program midi in binary which i think is absurd like that is silly like i get it's fine to like teach binary of like this is where midi came from in like the 80s and like we all got together and you know, I know that two of the five pins on a MIDI cable are dead pins because they were like, maybe we'll need them in the future. And we don't want all of our old gear to be obsolete. So that was sort of the first, like the beginning of, you know, my sound design and composing uh, sort of career pathway. And and I got really into horrible EDM, like just awful music. Like I, I remember at the time I was like, EDM is cool because I don't have to go record a whole band, but I can still practice mixing. And you can like have a perfect, you know, in air quotes, mix in a digital environment. Like there's no noise added. So you have no excuse for your mix to sound bad, right? So, and that was kind of how I, how I looked at it. And so I, I cut my teeth a lot on just designing synths from the ground up. And I had this just horribly toxic relationship with presets where I was like, I'll never use presets. If you if you use presets in your music, you're not a real musician. Like I do not think that way anymore. Just to be clear, but it it was sort of helpful in that like all the patches I was using, I would like build from the ground up. And I remember I was taking the Ableton specific course, which is my first introduction to Ableton. And I asked the professor, it's like, hey, I really like designing synth sounds. How can I make a career out of that? And uh, she was like, well, you have two options really. She's like, you can either tour with a band and be their like on stage programmer and and you know like the guy who's or the guy girl person who's running um the drum tracks like the tempo map and and keeping the live show together it's like or you can do sound design and i wanted a career longer than five years um <laughs> sorry no no offense to the live guys out there but their their jobs terrifies me as a studio person because of hearing loss so i was like sound design seems awesome. So I started getting into synthesis, not only as a, as a music medium, 
but as uh, a medium for creating otherworldly sounds that weren't necessarily musical, you know. And while I was doing that, I started taking a digital composing class, which the whole purpose of, of it was we're not using any real instruments, but we're going to build these orchestras. We're going to, you know, I think the only real instrument we were allowed to use was a guitar, and, uh, but we weren't allowed to record a real amplifier, so we had to use amp um, simulations. And that class was really pivotal in me learning how to write to something, because up, up until that point, you know, all my music writing had been for me. And it was the first time I was, I was tasked with writing music for someone or for something. And it was oddly like liberating to be like, I, I think as an artist, you know, you're constantly battling with your inner voice of like, is this fresh? Is this new? Like, has this done, has this been done before? Like, is this my voice? Am I copying someone? When you're doing like, not freelancer contract work, but when you're when you're doing work that is for a medium or a project bigger than yourself, it's really easy to let go of that and just accept that your music has to work for whatever you're writing for. And so, if that means doing something that's been done before, like not every project requires you reinventing the wheel. I mean, how many orchestral scores have there been in films since John Williams did, you know, the Star Wars and Indiana Jones films? Like, some things just work because they're the ways we should we should do them. And of course, I'm all for um, going against the grain and, and trying new things. But that that class really gave me the opportunity in the creative box because we had rules for each project and structures. And, and, and that would that was my first like to what I do now, like, you know, composing for games. I don't get to write, you know, I'm not writing like gent for a fantasy game. It was my first sort of introduction into being in that headspace and sort of thinking about asking the questions of like what emotions should i bring out where should i use those emotions you know should i hold back and and sort of learning to ask myself all those questions of you know how to control someone's emotions through a whole piece um that class was was really important for all of that so hopefully i'm not rambling too much and that that all made sense <laughs> that, another another moment of uh, random trivia you mentioned uh, john williams and his uh, Star Wars scores and all that. But did you know that John Williams also wrote the theme music to Gilligan's Island? I did not. <laughs> that is crazy. Um, yeah, if you ever, if you ever, you know, I don't know, Hulu or something, uh, you know, the old episodes of uh, Gilligan's Island, if you watch the end credits, it'll say music by Johnny Williams, and it is the John Williams we know today. That is crazy. Before he did music, uh, music film scores, he was doing tele another old television show was Lost in Space. He did the uh, theme music for Lost in Space also. I'm writing that down to look that up later. Yeah, Gilligan's Island, that was John Williams. Which, you know, that explains why it's so catchy. Yeah. The tune, that is. <laughs> so you finished your degree in what year at MTSU? 2018. And, I, and, you know, there's a myth that you won't finish in four years if you step on the seal there. And I did step on the seal by accident. And I finished in four and a half. I had to go one extra semester to finish because of uh, some class, like... You know, a curriculum screw-ups of like, well, this is only offered in the spring, you know, so. So there's some truth out there to any MTSU students. Just be forewarned. <laughs> so you, 2018, you finished up 
you know, with this degree, mm-hmm. then, you know, at that point, did you know what you wanted to do or was it like, I've just got to find a job doing something? I mean, what, what was the process like and what did you end up doing coming out of college? Yeah. So coming out of college, you know, I think for a lot of people, if, if you're not stepping into a job, like if you weren't placed somewhere by your college or through an internship program, it's very terrifying that moment of, well, now what? <laughs> and at that time in 2018, I mean, there were no jobs in Nashville. And like, that's the obvious like stepping stone from MTSU. And it was, you know, a lot of studios in Nashville, and obviously like I, I'm going to have a somewhat biased, bitter opinion of them. They have these obnoxious programs where they refuse to hire outside of their internal apprentice programs. So even if you have your master's in the recording arts from MTSU, you have to go through this obnoxious internship program where uh, you have to be partnered with a, with a university, which costs money. So you're paying like two, three grand to have the opportunity to work, to have the opportunity to then be asked to join their staff. Maybe, maybe, right? Yeah, exactly. So studio production or studio audio was even before I graduated, I was like, there's, that's just, there's no way. I mean, there, you know, congratulations to all the engineers out there that, that got, got those gigs really happy for you guys. But you know, those, those guys stay in those jobs for a long time and they don't need big teams to run those studios. So thankfully I had the foresight to, um, and, and I had some like some vague interests going into college as well about post-production audio. I had this idea that I wanted to do film audio because I had a gross misunderstanding of how that worked. And so I took two post-production classes and I started look, looking for post jobs. I remember I applied to Pinewood um, Studios in Atlanta. They were like working on some of the Marvel movies at the time, I believe. That didn't go anywhere. And um, I just kept applying to places. And I hit a point where I was like, man, this is like ridiculously hard to find an opening in post-production audio. Why don't I just, like, I, I had always loved games and it always been a thought in the back of my mind. I was like, well, you know, I could try game audio. And after, you know, the job hunt became obvious that it was going to be difficult. I was like, well, if it's going to be this difficult, why not just do it and start the job hunt in the games industry? Like if it's going to be this hard in the where I technically have my degree for in, you know, studio post-production audio. Why don't I just aim towards game audio? Cause at the time I was like game audio, that's like a dream. Like that's insane. I, I, there's a lot of jobs, but it, it felt similarly to like landing, you know, an engineer job at one of the big studios in Nashville. Like it just felt like something that wasn't real almost. And so, man, I made a horrible demo reel and started applying to like 35 studios, I think, when the first like six months heard back from two, they went nowhere. And, you know, there, there was a point where I was like, maybe, I'd, you know, maybe I'm just going to be another one of the MTSU grads who doesn't doesn't make it. And I was really down like the, the band I was in broke up um, and like really nasty breakup. And so I had sort of fallen out of love with writing music for, for a little bit and seemed like there was no job opportunities. And, you know, there was a point where I was just like, maybe this isn't going to happen. And then <laughs> in uh, 2020, uh, COVID happened and I lost my job that I was currently at. I was a barista and I sort of had, you know, 
an epiphany, mental breakdown, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? Like I have, I'm very passionate about audio. I should do audio. So I, you know, I, I had applied to a few more places, still was not getting anything. And so on a whim, I reached out to an audio director at a, at a major studio on LinkedIn. And I was like, Hey, uh, I just got my degree. I have been looking for jobs, but no one will hire me because I don't have any experience, but I don't know how to get that first job to get experience. So do you have any advice on how to make me like more hireable? And to my shock, he replied in like five minutes and was like, well, send me your demo reel. And I sent it to him. And, you know, like looking back now, like hindsight, like that, that reel was just stupid because it had no, it was just audio. Like, cause at the time I was like, I'm a sound designer. I'd make sound. I don't make anything with visuals. Like that's silly. And he was like, you need a visual. Like we work in a visual medium. No one's going to hire you if your demo reel doesn't include a visual element. Cause you have, that's half the job is designing to something, not just making like anyone can make cool sounds. The hard part of sound design is selling that separate, like that suspension of disbelief that what's happening on screen is actually producing the sound. And man, he tore into that reel. Like he did not hold back. And I very, you know, like sort of like tail between my legs was like, man, I just feel so unprepared for this. And I ended up, but you know, that's, that's exactly what you needed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, this, the story wraps up nicely, but uh, I didn't, I ended up not responding to that message. Cause I just, I just didn't know what to say. Like, I was like, I'm some idiot kid who isn't working in the industry. I just messaged this guy who's been in it for like 15 years. And he gave me like all this really explicit feedback and I just, I didn't know what to do with it. So I had sat on that for like a couple of weeks and was like, I'm going to redo my reel and prove to myself that I can do this. So I rebuilt my reel with visuals. You know, we were in quarantine, so the opportunity was there. I had a lot of free time. And uh, I built a little ISO booth in my apartment with pillows and blankets and uh, did a reel Again, again, going back to this horribly toxic idea that if it's not all my audio, it's not worth anything and did an entire Foley recreation of all of these like short clips from, from video games. And, um, like I remember using like my silverware drawer as a tank sound. Cause I could get like the wheels and the cyclical motion out of it easily and, um, built that reel and then started applying again, still didn't hear from anybody. And, you know. But I, I was like freshly motivated. I had made something I was proud of. It took, I think, two or three months to, to do the reel. And then one magical day, I'm scrolling through Reddit and I see a job posting on, um, it's like, our, uh, I need a team. I was, on, I was on several like game developer classified subreddits. And it was a, the post was like former Riot and PUBG developers um, looking to build new studio. And I was like, oh, that's, that's awesome. So I clicked on it. Didn't mention audio. I was like, I'll reach out anyway. Like, hey, I'm Alec. I'm a sound designer. I would love to do the audio for your game. I don't have a lot of experience, but I'm really excited to learn and be a part of game development. And they gave me an interview. And I mean, I was like through the roof that I was even getting an interview. And this, and, and keep in mind, like this isn't even a paid gig yet. Like this is a new studio. They're offering revenue share, you know, an indeterminate amount of working for free was on the path ahead of me got went to the interview 
they're like, you know, thank you for your time, blah, 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 blah. Uh, a couple of days later, I hear back and they're like, well, uh, we're going to go a different direction because you don't have any unreal experience. And that moment sucked so much because I was like, man, I can't even land a job where they're not paying me. And, and when you say unreal experience, so we're talking about a game engine, right? That yes. One of these things that, that the, the games are sort of built on top of. Yeah. So uh, Unreal Engine 4 was the, um, the game engine that they were building the game in. And I had no explicit experience working inside of the game engine, which was really a giant hole in my resume that, you know, if I was offering anyone advice, I'm like, dude, just like download it, start playing with stuff. Like just, you don't, you don't have to be a programming engineer to be a successful game developer, but you have to know how to at least navigate the engine. And they, they, they told me, you know, we're going to go a different direction because someone else has your same, like I was like neck and neck with this guy who had very similar credentials, but had worked in the Unreal Engine before. I was very disappointed. I was like, man, I sort of like took a step back and I was like sort of reevaluating what I wanted to do. You know, I still wanted to do audio, but wasn't sure how I was going to make it happen. And then out of the blue, I'm cleaning a bathroom in a coffee shop and I get an email from the same, same guys. Uh, and they're like, Hey, um, our audio position opened back up. Uh, are you still interested? And so they gave me another interview and, um, the president of, of Hidden Leaf Games now, um, David Lee, was like, we really liked your interview. We know you don't have the experience or some of the, and, and, and that you'll need time to learn, but we want you to, to join the team. So, you know, they extended an, an, the Olive Branch and I, I took the opportunity and, you know, bought a textbook on how to program in Unreal, bought a, two Udemy courses, two or three Udemy courses on Unreal and spent several months on sort of on the job but not necessarily on the job because you know there wasn't money in it and we did, it was a very low risk environment at that time and learned the the unreal engine and yeah that was sort of how i got my break and and i was working full-time at a coffee shop and then would come home and was working 40 hours a week on this game for free and like my family thought i was insane they're like you are being made a fool and i was like no nah, this is it like oh, this is the chance and then um yeah, in March of 2021, we had confirmed investment of several million dollars. And in, you know, one day, my whole life turned upside down. You can pay the light bill now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's crazy. I, I was like, I remember the feeling. I was like, okay, let me get this straight. So you're going to pay me more money than what I was making to make sound all day? Like, all I'm going to do is sit in my apartment and design sound, and you're going to pay me a salary. It just didn't feel real. Like it still doesn't feel real two years later. Um, but yeah. But you, man, you were persistent. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 that is that's very difficult, you know. Yeah, I think it's very easy to forget that like this, that games are a a job, and man, you got to be passionate about this. Like, if if anyone's listening to this and you're thinking about games, like. Make sure you really like games because your whole life is going to get consumed by it. Because, I mean, you know, I work like 60-hour weeks, but I don't think about it because I'm, I'm absolutely in love with my work. But, you know, it's, it's a high-stress environment, and, you know, it takes a certain kind of person to, to keep up with the pace of it. But, man, I mean, for, for me, it's just a, I'm, I'm living a dream, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, well, tell me about that. What are, what are those high stress parts of the job like? Yeah. So the obvious thing is, you know, you're a part of a team of, you know, my team is uh, around 55, which is a large number for a small studio, but a small number for a large studio. And we're all codependent on each other. So if, you know, if, if I miss a deadline, like I'm not only making my life worse, I'm making someone else's life worse. Or 50, 54 other lives <laughs> Exactly. And, and, you know, it's, it's like being, it reminds me of going back to like being in middle school and high school band. Like if one person, it only takes one person to make the band sound bad. It only takes one person not doing their job to the same level to make everyone look bad. And when, you know, when we're going to publishers or we're going to investors and we're trying to get more money or, you know, try or showing something off to, to a new player base, if everyone isn't at their just 100% a game, like we all suffer from it. So there, there is like part of the stress comes from the, the weight and the responsibility of you, you can never like let up now. You know, not to make my studio sound like they're like cracking the whip at us. Like my studio is very, very lenient with our time off and they, and they really are people first. Um, and I, I absolutely love working there, but, um, deadlines of course are, no, are another stressful point. Like there's the reality of like, we've got to finish it. Right. Like this can't be this like artsy project of, Oh, it's, it'll be done when it's done. Like, no, it'll be done on Friday. <laughs> and And you've got to figure out how to make that happen. And I, I think one of the hardest skills to learn and, and one of the ones that can only be done through like trial and error is learning those shortcuts and like learning how to like, what does your 80% of quality look like? What is your 100% of quality look like? What does your 50% of quality look like? You know, one of the things that I pride myself on is like, I can make, if, if you want a composition in 30 minutes, I'll send you something. I, I know what shortcuts I need to take. I know, you know, I'm already sort of planning, like road mapping my head, how I'm going to make that happen. But I've also worked on composition that took like eight months, like these huge long pieces. And they both end up sounding professional because I knew what corners to cut with the 30 minute piece. And I knew what I could take my time on and really perfect in the piece that took, you know, several months. Um, so that sort of resource and like, personal resource management is a really important skill and i think not having that can can create a lot of stress in young young developers when you know you're told like hey you got to finish this like today like sorry you know and and that's where a lot of people can fall in the trap of like crunch and like oh well, i've got to pull 85 hour weeks until this is finished and really all they got to do is ask a senior level developer for help and usually it's fine, you know, but, um, yeah, I, I think just knowing you're a part of, of a collaboration where people are relying on you, the time deadlines and just we're artists, you know, it's a creative process and you get a lot of negative, like 85% of the feedback you're going to get is negative. I mean, it's not like the first thing you do is going to be what ends up in the game. So you kind of, you very quickly have to grow some tough skin and be like, and be ready for people to tell you that they don't like your stuff and be ready for players to very violently and explicitly tell you why they don't like their stuff or your stuff. You know, I, the, the longer you do it, the easier it gets. You know, I've only been doing it two years and I've already like have a completely different outlook from the work than, than I did. Cause you know, it was like I was saying before with the composition, like at the end of the day, it's not your project. It's, it's someone else's that you are a, a tool, a part of, and, and there's creative, liberation in that and there's also some like safety in in knowing in knowing that yeah 
Well, yeah, I mean, I can, uh, even though it's been a minute, you know, I can relate, you know, being a brand new first year teacher and I have all these things in my head of, you know, what it's going to be like, you know, to be a teacher and now I'm doing it. And, uh, and then, you know, two years later into teaching, you're like, okay, you know, some of it is what I thought it would be, but <laughs> there are a lot of surprises, you know, here too. So yeah, that does happen. So you start to work on this, you know, video game. You've got this team mm-hmm. that's all, you know, going to do sound. Are you given any kind of like visuals? Like do they do sort of like, you know, like sketches of what they have in mind or, you know, how does that, because at some point, you know, I'm sure that like the, the visual side of the development has to begin working with the sound side of it. Yeah. So huge part of game development is just iteration and, and, going back and doing the work over again. And so very early on, you know, how, how we break up our development is into these several phases. And the first phase of that is like, we know these aren't going to be the final assets, but we need to get something in the game to sort of get an idea for what will work and what won't. In the early days, sometimes I wouldn't have a, uh, a visual, but um, we're long past that. You know, I, I'm always designing to animations and visual effects because at, at the end of the day, that is what I have to, um, to sync to. No one's going to believe my audio if it doesn't match a visual. Your project you're working on now hasn't been released and mm-hmm. there's not you know, too much you can say about it. But what you're working on now, is it, would you say, is, is it sci-fi? Is it realistic is it fantasy i mean what kind of sort of very general kind of world are you designing for yeah so i'll probably speak a little slower as i make sure i don't uh, accidentally leak anything the project i'm working on is called fangs it's being developed by hidden leaf games all of the information you know if anyone wants to go look it up is on our website and on our discord it is a fantasy world we are an isometric game so we've we've been explicitly told not to say certain things. Yeah, no, you can make it hypoth. I mean, I, I ask this question because I'm sort of wondering: Does somebody come in like with a list of sounds and go, "Okay, we need sounds for four different kinds of uh, laser guns," and we have uh, you know eight different right creatures that are going to live in this do you get like a like a shopping list of of stuff or i'm just trying to get an idea of kind of you know how that might work yeah so so we're, we're a fantasy game and we're a competitive game um for four v four very like skill skill oriented you know it's, it's very much like a moba but with a twist sort of i have the luxury of sort of even though i'm not in a director role you know, like the question you're asking of like who decides what sounds go where. I have somehow been given that where I, I am part of what, you know, I was speaking earlier is like systems design. You know, part of my job is deciding what gets audio and, and, and what doesn't. So one of the very first things I'll do is I'll sit down with a character and I'll use all their abilities. I'll play around with them and sort of ask myself like, and I'll, I'll get like a narrative brief document from, um, from our writer and I'll read through that and and start asking myself like what's important to this character how does this character play you know how does this character interact with the other characters you know what's the personality of this character and and sort of I, I will make a very explicit list of like uh 
almost like you know you, you would do like a storyboard where you're like making your shot list of like this we need a wide shot we need and you, and you know you're going through and you're like we need all these lenses etc cetera, etc cetera. i'll go through it i'll be like we need um this kind of sound at this moment we need this and it'll be like a two or three page document that i'll then hand to an engineer um for them to do the back end work for thankfully i have some very intelligent um, sound designers that work on my team as well and for them what I essentially you know they have a lot of freedom something that like Hidden Leaf believes a lot in is if if you give artists a space they'll why it, it might take more iteration giving them that freedom it'll pay off in years to come of a more experienced artist um, so they have a lot of freedom to sort of try out and and all, all we really give them is like the gameplay specific stuff so we're like you know hits have to have a certain loud loudness and be a certain priority and cut through the mix in a certain way and timing elements of, of various abilities have to have some signifier so like you know if if a swing takes one second like we don't want one second of white noise we want one second of a rhythm or pitch change something to signify timing so that players can learn and and so the those like sort of requirements we developed over the course of several months of just play testing the game and figuring out what 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 audio is important for the game, what audio isn't important for the game. And it took us about a year of playing to like really find, okay, this is the audio we'll need for every character. This is the audio that's less important. And that that year was really important in determining where the resources were gonna go. That that year was sort of like a pre-production phase of figuring everything out. And then we're currently in our production phase of where we're we're building all those all those assets out and um and yeah and, and just sort of filling the the grocery list yeah so and you know one of the things that i'm really sad that has sort of been lost with television not many television shows have like really great memorable theme music like mm-hmm. you know, back in the 70s and 80s there you know there were so many television shows that you could recognize it instantly just when you heard the theme music from you know like hawaii 50 or, or something <laughs> like that love boat yeah So I feel like we've lost that some, you know, with television, but with gaming, like, you know, I remember the days of Pac-Man and Space Invaders where you just had and, you know, waka, 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 waka kind of stuff. And, um, you know, now, you know, major symphony orchestras, you know, around the world will put on their, their concert calendar every year where they'll do a concert that's dedicated just to scores from video games. I know, it's crazy. We mentioned like Halo and Kingdom Hearts and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So how does the sound team, I guess, sort of break up between, you know, it, to relate it to film, like those who would be like the Foley artists versus those who were doing mm-hmm. like the music and soundtrack kind of stuff. So our sort of uh, audio team dynamic really happened very organically. Um, I was the only audio person for a full year of development. Um, it's cause we didn't need, we didn't need many at that time. As development started to ramp up earlier this year, we, we hired the two, two other sound designers and I mean, just very early on, you know, I was asked, can I compose music? <laughs> and I said, yes. And so I became the composer. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, like if there, if there's one takeaway from, from this, from this chat that, you know, someone else has, it's, it's really like, if, if you want to make it in the industry, you just have to be ready for your chance. When that opportunity comes, you got to be ready to take it and can't be scared of it. Cause it's going to be uncomfortable and awkward, but you know, it's, it's worth it. And and so I was given the opportunity. I, you know, again, same, same thing as before, right? Like there's only one composer usually for a game and there's a lot of games out there, but 
being a composer is really difficult. Like there are so many good composers already. You're already going to a saturated market with people who have long lasting careers who can turn stuff over really fast. It's a really difficult field to break into. I didn't think I would ever have the opportunity, but I was asked if I could compose and, and I said yes. And thankfully the studio really liked the early work I did. And so when we decided to hire more people, I was asked again, like, hey, do you want to keep composing? I said that I did. So we, we try to work around each other's strengths. Audio is a very wide field, lots of different things. My personal strengths are, you know, programming, like MIDI programming and, and sound design. We hired um, a, a VO specialist. So someone who's mo- like the majority of, of their career, they've been in, in voice recording and, and their work is fantastic. You know, I'm not very good at I can do it, obviously, you know, I'm still an audio engineer at the end of the day, but the work that they can do is a lot better than what I can do on VO. So, you know, we hired a specialist for that. Um, and then we hired a second sound designer who's just as strong at specifically sound design. So we, we built the team sort of with me as the sort of jack of all trades, master of none, and, and then went out and got um, people who are more focused in, in, in specific areas which is nice because I sort of float around and we'll do work here and there and, and, and can be very flexible. And then but for the majority of the very like discipline specific work, you know, they're handling it and they're doing a fantastic job at it. And that's the kind of, it seems like kind of the nature of how a project like this develops. Mm-hmm. You know, you start it, you start off with such a rough, you know, rough idea of, of what it's going to be like. And, you know, I'm sure all the graphics look really terrible and <laughs> yes. the sounds are, you know, super, uh, but you know, um, you're just trying to create a draft and as you begin to, you know, add more detail, you just, it requires additional people to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a very collaborative iterative process. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned earlier about getting that experience in, you know, working in unreal engine mm-hmm. and, you know, that these video games uh, are a lot of video games that are, are, are based on. So, but I know, or I say, I know, I'm, I don't know. I'll, I'm asking, but at some point, do you have to work with someone who is like more on the programming side, who is actually responsible for getting the sounds and getting the music programmed into the game? Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> that is a constant, constant conversation. The engineers, are a different breed of people who are very patient and lovely people. Uh, cause yes. So, so what, how that sort of relationship typically works is we'll write up, um, what we call, you know, like a design specification of how we want something to work. So great example, a big system that we have been working on recently is our voiceover system. And, you know, I very explicitly was like, when this happens, we want characters to do this, this, and this, and I've got no idea how to make any of that happen. All I know is I, I, I know the output I want and the sort of design goals that I want, but I don't know how to make that happen. And so we'll write up the spec and then we'll sit down with an engineer and have a chat of like, what's possible, what's not, where can we compromise on, on certain things? And, you know, it's very collaborative in, in that sense. And it's, it's one thing that I think is just like robbed of, of students in, in schooling environments is not having that, like working with a completely different discipline. Like I, I wish more programs had these like crossover projects of like, you know, for film, like 
having a director, having actors, having, you know, a cinematographer, having an editor, like the whole process, you know, those relationships are so important. Like that's where projects live and die. So yeah, I mean, we're in constant contact with engineers. You know, it's a it's the constant relationship of we want a little bit more and they don't want to always give it. You know, they're like, we just want to push push the system a little further. And they're like, can't do that. Bring it back a little bit. And, you know, there's a fun, creative collaboration that happens there of, you know, making sure that the game works in a, in a way that we want it and that, you know, what we're asking for is even possible. One of the big differences between doing sound, you know, say for film versus you know, video games is that, you know, when you do something for film, once you, once it's finished, like it's, it's linear press play and it's going to run from start to finish. Whereas, you know, with video games, so much of it is, it's going to be based on player input. So you may have a sound, for example, some kind of weapon, Mm -hmm. but the character may be, uh, you know, what does that sound like if, if your character, if you're playing like, you know, a third person shooter or something, what does that sound like if you're holding the gun versus what does it sound like when an adversary has it and they're a hundred yards away and the variables seem mind boggling. Yeah. It's, um, and I think that was one of the first things I found like really intoxicating about game audio is, you're not just designing a linear format where you know exactly what the listener is going to hear. You're, in, you're designing a system of sounds that all have to work. You, you think masking is difficult in an eight-track audio recording? Try having you know, 150 different audio cues fired off at once, and, and you don't know necessarily which ones are ever being fired. Like, and so much pre-planning, and I mean, you know, I could go down, like, we could have a whole two-hour conversation about, like, what goes into a design but yeah that that sort of interconnectivity and and the non-linear aspects of game audio is you know it's one of one of the things i find you know so fascinating about the discipline it's the challenge that makes it engaging and fun right yeah so yeah i know we're getting close to the end of our time but i had two things two questions i wanted to uh, make sure I ask before we go. So, mm-hmm. and you, you've kind of mentioned a lot of different things as we've talked, but I just, you know, at the end, is there anything about what you're doing now, good or bad yeah. that has surprised you or maybe that you just weren't expecting that you found about what you're doing now? Yeah. So I think the biggest surprise was how important it was to play games growing up and, and having that built-in knowledge base of of what games are and you know i we had talked about it when we ran into each other that um no one looks at a kid playing football for his high school and like conditioning and doing all the training and practice all like spending his whole time doing it no one ever tells that kid well you're not going to make it to the nfl like what are you doing with your life like everyone's like no that's go to college on it pursue this teaches you discipline whatever no one ever questions that kid the kid who's sitting inside playing video games all day you know, that person's rotting their brain out, wasting their life away. When they're solving these complex problems that a game might be presenting to them. And, you know, my parents, I've talked to them since, and they're like, I mean, they're like, if if we had known, we'd have let you play as many video games as you wanted. You know, and and there, there is a difference, like with any art form, there's a difference between like actively experiencing it and passively experiencing it. So what I never realized was so important was all those years of me like opening these like manuals looking up guides on the internet like getting just so deep into these games and trying to understand how they work inside and out like that became such a useful knowledge base 
to develop from and to, you know, I had so many experiences. It's, it's all these little things. You're like, man, why on earth does this game work like this? Like that sucks. Like someone designed it to suck like that. Like, you know, it didn't happen by accident. Like it's, those, are, those decisions are very intentional. And, and sometimes the side effects from those intentional decisions are miserable. And, and it's, it's, you know, you, you have these like very like pivotal things like that stick with you. And, and, you know, it's like with anything, like you grow up and you're like, I don't want to make games like that. Or the other side of it, like, man, this, like this moment in this game was awesome. Like I want to just distill that into like a substance that I can just drink all day. Like I, I want to just live and breathe in, in that moment of like awe and, and inspiration and, like I know what games did that for me and I just want to recreate that experience for other people and, and try to improve on the medium from the mistakes learned from before us. Cause plenty of developers will, you know, GDC talks, postmortems will tell all of their horrible ideas. Like most developers are like, yeah, this didn't work. Cause it takes so long, you know, like we were discussing before, like the iteration process, you know, you get a year in development, something just might, like fundamentally might not work. And you don't know that until the whole game is sort of there to look at. So yeah, the, the, the big surprise was sort of the aha moment when I was like, man, all of the, all that time I spent playing video games, that was me learning. That was me learning how games worked. That was me experiencing this art form very, in a very deep and, and intentional way that taught me so much about how games work without me even thinking about it. Like, of course you, you, you don't hear the gunshots from the other side of that building. But like in a game engine, you have to very explicitly tell audio not to do that. Like it's not a real physical environment where brick actually like causes reflections. Like you have to go in and be like, no, I want that brick to reflect in, in this very explicit way. Like all of those details have to be very intentionally designed. And when you grow up playing games and you grow up like, like, wow, that, like, I remember playing Black Ops 2 for the first time, like, walking into a room while firing. It was, like, very um, open, very spacious. And then you get in the room, and it's just, like, these loud, concussive blasts. So I was like, man, that's crazy. And it's such, like, a small detail. And, you know, it's all those just, like, collection of, like, large experiences that are, are the most important form of knowledge that that I have, you know, more important than my than my degree and anything. And, and it's why I'm passionate. And it's why I don't get burnt out, you know, on the weeks that I do have to work crazy long hours. Cause I know I'm creating something that hopefully someone will, will have a similar experience with. Yeah. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, people that particularly if they're, you know, younger people that listen to this, that, you know, take notice of the, your determination to keep pursuing uh, this career, uh, even when you're faced with disappointment and things like that. But otherwise, you know, if there is a kid that's in high school or whatever, are there any other bits of advice you could give as far as, you know, should they be focused on taking, you know, a bunch of STEM classes or what other things could they do to, uh, put themselves in a better position to go to a school like MTSU and eventually, you know, end up doing something in the industry that you're in. Advice that I would give, you know, kids coming up. I mean, first play, you know, specifically for games, um, but for any art form, like just live and breathe it. You know, if you if you want to get into games, like play a ton of video games, play a lot of different video games, try your best to understand why they work the way they work, you know, break them you know, research them, like really deeply understand how they work. Cause there's a, a lot of teachable moments in, in 
activities like that, you know, outside of, of that, like, I think do just a little bit of research, you know, it doesn't take, you know, anyone with a doctorate to figure out what might be needed as far as like a skill set to get into the particular field or discipline you want to get into. Like one, one of my biggest missteps was, was not being explicitly trained in game engines and, and not knowing, um, specifically for audio, we, we use what's called, um, middleware, which is, a, uh, a development suite that is like a half step in between a game engine and a DAW. It's like a very audio engineer friendly environment that we're allowed to work in. And uh, the two big ones are WISE or WISE, depending on who you ask, and um, an FMOD. And so, you know, if you're, if you want to be an engineer, like know what languages you're, you're going to need to know. Unreal is the big engine that seems like everyone in the future is going to be using, uh, especially with the release of Unreal 5. A lot of large studios are, are abandoning their internal tools in favor of unreal it's also useful just to know like unity and like why why do people prefer unity or why do people prefer unreal over unity you know if you're an artist or an animator just di even just dipping your toes into the water of those of those um disciplines can be really really useful and on like my journey of watching youtube videos of how to make like skrillex dubstep bases like i learned so much about audio and sound design and, and those things and like i mean there's some objectively bad stuff in there but at least you're doing it right like you know no one ever makes david on their first attempt at sculpting like it takes some failures and 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 some mistakes to to understand why what works works so yeah i i would say just get really into you know what you want to do make it your whole life you know obviously like do it healthily and do it in a healthy manner do some small research because you know having the the little bit of like pre-existing knowledge of audio engineering going going into college made my classes so much easier because I was basically all always already a little bit ahead I had to, I didn't have to try as hard as my classmates did because I had already been doing it to some extent so building that starting to build that knowledge base slowly and you know dipping your toes and practicing and then understanding that you know the industry whatever industry you want to get into isn't out to get you even though it can feel like that and like no one wants you. Um, that is not the case. You know, on the other side of those applications that that go unanswered is someone who's really stressed out about filling a position. And to bring it back to the the audio director who had given me that really harsh feedback on on my reel, I I reached back out to him a year after, and I was like, hey, I just wanted to apologize for not responding to you originally. It's like it's really unprofessional, but I just wanted to know. With your feedback, I improved my reel. I was able to get a job, and now I'm working full time as a sound designer. And he was like, "This is the best thing I've read today." Like he's like, "You don't know. You have no idea how much it means to me to hear that my feedback like helped someone else find a, a job in the industry." So it's a hard industry to get into, but there are people all, all over the place that are fantastic and that you know want new young talent. I mean, my my studio was founded on taking that gamble on people who weren't proven in the, in the industry yet, you know, one of the things before we had investment money that are like the president would say was um, that we were the best, we were the best talent in the industry that wasn't paid. And that, that always made me feel like, like, you know, it's like we were, we were all, you know, kind of like rogues, like rebel types and, and, you know, very scrappy, like small development team of just like trying to get investment money. And, but it did help to, you know, there there are a lot of people who, who believe in young talent and, and who will give you the opportunity. It just takes persistence, a little bit of luck, and, you know, you have to be ready when the opportunity presents itself because, you know, 
it might only happen the one time. And if you let it go by and you don't grab it, you know, who knows when the next opportunity is going to show up. Yeah, for sure. Well, Alec, first of all, thank you for taking so much time to, uh, to chat with me this afternoon. Of course. Uh, you know, as a teacher, it's, uh, really one of the coolest things, maybe things that were, that were unexpected about what I love about being a teacher is maybe you have students and, you know, you're always wondering, I want, I wonder, you know, whatever, whatever happened and, uh, <laughs> to run into, run into you, uh, at a Braves game and to learn about what you're doing is, you know, really, really exciting to me. So I, congratulations on getting to where you are now. Thank and, you. uh, I look forward to when this game finally comes out and I get to play it myself. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to finally be able to talk talk more about it, you know, um, soon, TM, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, we've got a lot of really exciting things that we're, we're very close to announcing. You know, I'd love to have another chat, you know, obviously, uh, you know, this one was more focused on like how I got into the industry and, and you know, the, the road to get there. But, um, you know, once the game comes out um, or we show more of it, you know, I'd be happy to talk more in depth about the, the development and what all that's like and... Um, yeah, I mean, it's it was awesome running into you. Thank you for you know having me. It's uh, I'm very passionate about this, and I want to sort of pay it forward to the from the people who helped me get to where I'm at. You know, I want to to be a, a voice to to continue that and and to show you know young kids that I did exactly what you know my school system was trying to build. You know, I I went to band class. I got a the opportunity to be in the audio engineering program, which set me on a path to going to MTSU, which set me on a path directly into, into the field, into the industry. And I know of one other person from that Grayson class that's doing anything even remotely close to audio engineering work. And even from my graduating class from MTSU, like not a lot of us, you know, did it. And I think a big reason for that is just getting burnt out and not, not believing that it's possible. So any, any chance I can get to be a, a voice for, you know, encouraging people to chase that dream um you know i'm happy to do it i hope you enjoyed this episode of new tech teacher talk as much as i enjoyed recording it and my conversation with sound designer and composer alec ragsdale i hope you'll check out the website at www.newtechteachernet.com i would also encourage you to check out and subscribe to my youtube channel by searching new tech teacher net and you can also connect on social media with Facebook or Twitter. Once again, this has been your host, Heath Jones, with the Music Technology Teacher Network. Advocate, support, inspire, create. Teacher Network. Music Technology Teacher Network. Music Technology Teacher Network. Music Tech Teacher Network.